I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope in a future. That was one of the first verses that I read in my Bible when I was in prison after giving my life to Jesus. And even though the odds were completely against me, I chose to believe and stand on the word of God instead of what I could see with my natural eyes, the facts about my life and situation that I could see with my natural eyes. And I can tell you without any hesitation that God's word trumps any circumstance that we can face. Well, you better sit down and buckle your seatbelt for an amazing story today. My guest, Julie Seals, has overcome spina bifida, a 17-year addiction to crystal meth and to alcohol. She has experienced the amputation of her left leg and a life sentence in federal prison. And now, Julie shares her relentless passion for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. She has come out of the darkness and she's living gloriously in the light of Jesus Christ. Today's episode is an episode you don't want to miss and you might want to share it with a friend who's struggling. My name is Carol McLeod and I am the host on the Significant Women podcast. It is our delight to bring you the stories of ordinary women who have decided to live their lives wholeheartedly for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, they've discovered that it doesn't matter what you've gone through, we serve a God who's well able to take our ashes and to turn it into something rare and beautiful. That's the story of Julie Seals. Lean in and listen. I'm so excited you're here today, and I know a lot of your secrets, but I'm not going to share them yet because I want my listeners to be sitting on the edge of their seats to see what God has done in you and through you. So I'm going to ask you just a simple question that I ask a lot of my guests. Um, Julie, when you were a little girl, what did you want to be when you grew up? Like, What was in your heart to become? Oh, that's actually not simple. That's actually tough. (laughs) I was always changing my mind when I was a little girl. I wanted to be an optometrist like my dad. Then I wanted to work on a cruise ship. I was changing my mind every single week. (laughs) I love it. And of course, the Lord has allowed you to do a lot of different things with your life. So um, you have followed that multifaceted course throughout. But let's go back, Julie, to the day you were born. Because as with all of us, that's where our story begins. But your beginning was not an easy one. Tell us your story. Well, it was at Children's Hospital where I was born in California. And the doctors, as soon as they delivered me, they rushed me off to an operating room. And then they took me back in and handed me to my parents. Um, They didn't even operate. They said that I was going to die. And I had been born with spina bifida. There was a big hole literally in my back and my spinal cord was coming out through the skin. And the doctor said that I was going to be developmentally disabled and never able to walk. And so my mom and dad, who were first time parents, took me home so that I could die at home. 
but God had other plans. One of the scriptures that I found that just resonates is Psalm 139. It says, for he created my inmost being. He knit us together in our mother's womb and all the days ordained for us were written in this book before one of them ever came to be. And I didn't know it when I was young, but I was created by God on purpose for his purposes. So you were um, their first child, they're a little girl. Um, and then what happened next? You obviously didn't do what the doctor said was going to happen. What proceeded to happen through your childhood years with your health, with your back, with your legs? Well, as I was growing, so as I was growing up, I didn't even know that I had spina bifida or any problem at all. But when I got to be 12 years old, do you know how you go through a growing spurt when you go through adolescence and you just grow real fast, like overnight? And when I went through adolescence, um, I started getting a lot of pain in my feet and my feet were turning green and purple. And I then it in a short period of time, I couldn't walk. I was crawling around the house. I was in excruciating pain. And I don't remember this, but my mom said she would find me crying in my closet um, because I was in so much pain. And so she took me back to the doctor, the neurosurgeon, and he um, he did a myelogram and said that they had to do immediate surgery. So I had a tumor on my spinal cord and it was holding on to the nerves that go from your spinal cord down through your legs to your feet. And the nerve endings as I grew, they were pulling away from my feet and I lost all the feeling in my feet when I was 12 years old. So did the tumor have anything to do at all with the initial diagnosis of spina bifida or were they totally unrelated um, conditions? You know, that's a really good question and I don't know the answer. <laughs> oh, good. I asked a question that couldn't be answered. I love it. I don't know. <laughs> So they, they operated and they released the tumor from your spinal cord. And were you able to walk? Did the pain go away, Julie? Yeah. So they, they never could get all of the tumor out because it was it's literally wrapped around my spinal cord. So they cut as much of it away as they could. And then they sewed me back up again. The doctors told my mom that during the surgery, they cut through the cauda equina. I'm not sure what that is, I would okay. have to Google it. <laughs> but they said that when they did that, they literally saw visibly during the surgery, my spinal cord move, extend, um, because it had been holding it down. And so after the surgery, I never did get the feeling, the sensation back in my feet, but the pain was gone and I was able to walk and just kept on going as though life were normal. So you lived a normal teenage years. You were active and um, pain-free for those years that you were a teenage girl? Yeah, I actually played soccer. And I have a few pictures of when I played soccer. And I had really big leg muscles. And I'm like, gee, I wish I had those again. <laughs> but yeah, I was really, really active. I would run four miles a day. And yeah. You are such an overcomer. Um, did, you, did you go to college, Julie? What did your life look like post high school? So post high school, I started getting involved with the wrong people. Um, I, 
the word of God says bad company corrupts good character. Not saying I was a good character, but when I was in high school, I started migrating towards the wrong people who were drinking, who were smoking marijuana. And I ended up just meeting and connecting with the wrong people. When I was 19 years old, um, I ended up doing crystal methamphetamine for the first time. I worked at a tanning salon way back when they first came out. And one of the clients came in and he told me I needed to lose 20 pounds. And this was in an era where you, you know, you had to be like a size zero. And really society still does put um, you know, standards on women, and this is what you're supposed to look like. And so in an effort to achieve that, I went to a biker bar in Huntington Beach, and I bought a little bag of meth. And that one little bag took me on a journey straight to hell on earth. And so when I was 19, I started using crystal meth and hanging out in bars. And it just went, it just got worse from there. But you eventually got married. Um, how old were you when you got married for the first time? Well, so for the first time, I was 21 years old. Okay. And that lasted a year. Mm. Um, there was a lot of abuse in that. And I left so that I could live. Yeah. And then um, I just, I got caught up in the cycle of domestic violence Um so I went through a series of relationships that were abusive. Along the way, I ended up meeting my son's dad. We met in a bar. Um, we used together, and then he got sober first, and I kept on my path of self-destruction. So were your parents still involved in your life at this point, Julie, or had you walked away from relationship with them? So, yeah, they... They were still involved. I, my mom was an electrical aerospace engineer. My dad was an optometrist and they, they did not believe in Jesus as Lord and savior, but they were kind people and they loved me very, very much. And they honestly didn't know what to do for me or with me. Um, I was just breaking their heart every day, as you can imagine. Um, I was, stealing from them, um, just not a good daughter. And I would come home to their house every time I had messed up my own life and they let me come and live there and stay. And they never did give up hope that one day I would turn around. But then you had a little boy. So now you're responsible for this precious little boy. Yes. And, and you were a good mom to him. No, actually, I was not a good mom to him. I wanted to be a good mom. I wanted to okay. be, I wanted to be like you see in the Hallmark movies, you know, the beautiful woman who um, she's a good mom. All the kids come play at her house. She lives in a house with a white picket fence and, you know, the dream, everything is perfect. And when I got pregnant with and had my little boy, I was really deeply entrenched in alcohol and meth addiction, and I, I put my um, alcohol and drug use before my son. Yeah. Um, I 
I was really battling with his dad, who was my husband at the time. Our marriage was a mess. He had gotten sober. I did not. And I thought that the answer was to run away from life. So I took my little boy and I moved all the way across the country thinking that if I got from here to there, that everything would change and my problems would go away. The only thing was I didn't realize that I was my biggest problem. So here I am across the country uh, with a one and a half year old little boy and I was still addicted and still a mess. And so I was in this little town and I something deep in me believed and knew that God was real. Mm -hmm. I had a half sister who prayed with me when I was 15 years old and she told me about Jesus and that I needed to be born again. And I even said the sinner's prayer with her, but I didn't really understand what it meant. I didn't understand you know, that I was a sinner in need of a savior. And so it didn't stick. I went to church with her for about a month and then I just went backwards doing my own thing. And when I got to Tennessee with my little boy, um, I went to a church for a little bit and I told the pastor there that I needed to be baptized. And he didn't ask me if I knew I was a sinner or if I knew anything about Jesus. He just said, okay, come Sunday and I'll baptize you. And as I was coming up out of the water and he had put me down, he said, okay, because you've repented of your sins, Julie, I now baptize you in the name of the father and the son. And as I'm going down under the water, I'm thinking, repent of my sins. What does that even mean? Wow. And so I came up out of the water, a soaking wet woman instead of a new woman that I so desperately wanted to become. And it wasn't, I was in that town probably for two years. Um, Magnet for the wrong people met all the wrong people in that town who were drinking and doing drugs and living the life that I was living. And within two years, my son's father found me. We went through a very ugly custody battle during which I panicked. And I did what had become my trademark response to bad things in life. And I ran away. Mm. I ran from Tennessee all the way to Mexico. And I hid there for 10 days. By now, my son is almost five years old. Okay. I was in Mexico for about 10 days. And I thought, well, this wasn't a good idea. So I was coming back across the border to talk to the police. And they were waiting for me. And they put Tyler in one police car, they put me in another. And as we were driving off in separate police cars down the freeway in San Diego, I heard Tyler's little voice come over the radio and he said, hi, mama, I love you, mama. And I didn't see my son again, Carol, for 16 years. What? Yeah. Uh. 16 years, Julie. Mm-hmm. So what did your life look like immediately after losing your son, but then through all the years, you must have been aching for him? Yes. Um, you, you would think that that was my bottom. Yeah. Like when you, you hear about people hitting rock bottom, but it wasn't. Oh. I was in jail for three weeks for a misdemeanor child stealing charge. And when I got out, I went back to mom and dad's house 
and decided I was going to try to get my life right. And right after that, my dad found out he had lung cancer. My mom and I drove him to the hospital and the, it was worse than what we thought. He never made it out of the hospital after the surgery and he died just shortly after the surgery. So in this very short, to give you a snapshot in a two-year period of time, I have my leg. Oh, I didn't even tell you I had my leg amputated. <laughs> now, when did that happen in your story? That happened before I took Tyler across the country to Tennessee. Okay. Um, I actually, when I was 18, I started developing pressure ulcers. They got very infected. And from the time I was 18 to the time I was 28 years old, I had 12 surgeries trying to save my foot. But simultaneously, I'm addicted to alcohol and meth, which were canceling out the antibiotics that the doctors were giving me through an IV to try to save my foot. So when Tyler was about a year old, I had my left leg amputated below the knee because it gangrene had set in. And so your your leg issues and the pressure sores again were they a result of the spina bifida or the tumor is that yes. what happened uh-huh yes yes they were a result of medical complications for that okay so how old were you when you had your leg amputated i was 28 and so tyler's just a baby mm-hmm. you have your leg amputated you're in a horrible marriage you escape to tennessee you escape to Mexico, you come home, your daddy dies, you lost your little boy, and you're still not at rock bottom? No. Oh, Julie. I still wasn't at rock bottom. I, you, you really would think that I was, but I was, honestly, it was like I was living in a fog. I was in a death grip of the enemy and just alcohol and drugs and I really wasn't processing any of it, to be honest. I was staying numb. And after my dad died, right after the funeral, I I packed a bag of clothes and I moved to Mexico. Back to Mexico, um, where I had run with my little boy. Only now I don't have a little boy. My dad is dead. And I moved there with a plan to end my life. I went to a pharmacist, gave him a $20 bill and got a bunch of narcotics which you can do crooked things like that in Mexico. And I don't even remember how I found out about him, but um, I was going to take all the pills and end my life. And instead, something in me knew that if I did that, I wouldn't succeed because I had never succeeded at anything in my life. I messed up everything I tried. So instead of taking the entire bottle, I just took a couple a day. I made up my mind that I was going to continue to stay numb I drank every day. Uh, I met the wrong people. Remember, I'm a magnet for all the wrong people. So when I was in Mexico, um, I ended up meeting people who were cooking crystal meth, um, involved with the mafia. And at first I was afraid to befriend these people because I thought, well, the Mexican drug task force is raiding their house with machine guns and they're paying them off. And I don't need to be involved with people doing those things. And it wasn't long before I had a meth lab in the bathroom of the house I was running in Mexico. And the Mexican drug task force was raiding my house with machine guns. 
And yeah, it was almost like I was living this crazy movie. It was like, it's a movie, right? Yeah, it is. It's a a movie. It's a horrible movie, Julie. Um, So what happened next is what led to the rock bottom. Okay. I ended up stepping on a rusty construction nail with my only real remaining foot. And I walked around high all day without knowing it was in my shoe because I couldn't feel my foot. So at the end of this day, I went to take my shoe off and my shoe was nailed to my foot. And I turned my foot over and I saw the head of a rusty nail and my heart sunk. I pulled the nail out and there was a big hole in my foot. And I just felt like, you know, oh no, I know where this is going to lead. Yeah. I went to see a doctor in Mexico and my foot swelled up quickly to the size of a football. And he told me that leg is going to be amputated. You have to get back to the United States. And I just looked at him because I'm a fugitive. I ran away from probation after taking my son to Mexico during a custody battle. So I just said, I can't go back. And I went home to this home that I was renting on the ocean in Ensenada, Mexico. And I fell to my knees in the living room, Carol. And I remember that right there was the desperation point because it, it all, it was like my life just came flooding in, in front of me. And I saw everything that had happened. And all this time I had thought of myself as a victim of all this stuff that had happened to me. And I started crying out to God in that living room. And I said, God, I don't know if you're listening. I don't know if you can hear me and I don't know how to pray, but I need you to become the center of my life or I'm going to be lost forever. And it was as though the Holy Spirit himself descended into that living room. Just his presence was so thick and so real. And I said, I was weeping and I said, God, I cannot even meet you halfway. I need you to do whatever it takes. So I give you permission, do whatever it takes. And I got up from that prayer and I drank a really strong drink and I passed out because that's how I went to bed every single night for decades was I passed out. And um, the next day I got up and I didn't feel different. And the mafia came to my house and asked me if I wanted to take drugs across the border for money. And I thought God didn't hear me because nothing seemed to change. Nothing was changed. And so I said, okay, I let them duct tape four pounds of crystal meth around my waist. And somebody drove me to the international border and let me out on the Mexico side. I was supposed to walk through to America, to San Diego And I was going to meet that person and we were going to drive to mafia people and I was going to give them the meth. But instead of going through the border all the way, I had four pounds of crystal meth duct taped around my waist. And I ended up walking up to a United States marshal with a gun and I told her what I was doing and I turned myself in. Oh my. And that was not my plan. But what happened is I gave God permission and begged him to do whatever it took to become the center of my life. Because I told him, I said, I'm going to be lost forever. I was losing my sanity. And I felt the presence of God. Like I felt him in my living room when I cried out to him. His presence was right there at the border with me during my arrest. And he spoke to my heart and I knew it was God. And he said, two years, Julie. 
And I knew that four pounds of meth was a life sentence. So I kind of shook my head and thought, God must not know federal drugs sentencing guidelines. (laughs) (laughs) But again, he spoke to my heart and said, two years. I was arrested. I was taken to the Metropolitan Correctional Center in San Diego, California. And I was arraigned a week later at 17 years to life with my mom in the courtroom. And how old are you now, Julie? Now I'm 35. You're 35. I'm 35. Your your mom had to sit in the courtroom and watch her precious daughter get a sentence of 17 years to life. Yes. Mm. And our eyes met. And the pain that I caused her, oh my gosh, I... I would have done anything to crawl under a rock to take that pain away. And that was the last time I ever saw my mom in person because she ended up dying two months before I got out of prison. However, God in his mercy, I'm going to just say this. God is so merciful because six months into my prison sentence, Um, we were calling, we were talking to each other on the phone and I was telling her, mom, I gave my life to Jesus, um, because prison ministry volunteers and here's where you and I are, we've got this heart connection, Carol. The first week I was in prison, a group of women came into that prison and one of them marched over and sat right down on my bunk and said, did you know that Jesus loves you very much? And I said, not me. You don't know what I've done. And she kept insisting that no matter what I had done, Jesus would forgive me and make me a new person and change my life. And all I had to do was ask him. And so I did. And when the women, other inmates were off eating dinner, I got down on my knees and I was weeping and asked Jesus to come into my heart and forgive me of my sins and make me a new creation and do something good with my life. And... All of a sudden, right there on what society calls the wrong side of the razor wire, I was free on the inside and I knew it. And that was the moment that everything changed for me. And I was so full of joy because I had Jesus living on the inside of my heart. I didn't even care if I got out of prison or not. And I was talking to my mom on the phone and I was saying, Mom, I gave my life to Jesus. And guess what, Mom? You always wanted me to get your my bachelor's degree. I'm going to do it. I heard that prisoners can get their bachelor's degree from prison, and I'm going to do it, Mom. Oh. And she was not very excited about that at first because, you know, here is her daughter in prison. But after talking to her on the phone a while, month after month, she started to really, I could tell in her voice, she started to hear something change. And for the first time in my life, I was honest with my mom. And I said, mom, I've been a drug addict for years and I hid it from you and I lied to you and I I stole from you and dad and I'm so sorry. And mom, please forgive me. So even though I never saw my mom in person again, God gave me that grace and that beautiful experience of being able to have those raw, honest conversations with her and just be able to tell her what I did. And she forgave me. Well, we'll get back to Julie's story in just a minute, but because Julie spent time in prison, I wanted to take the time to tell you that Carol McLeod Ministries is actively involved in taking the Bible to women's prisons 
all across America. Over the summer, we sent a thousand copies of my Bible study, Meanwhile, to the Texas women's prison system. This fall, we sent 1,200 copies of Meanwhile to the women's prison system in North Carolina. We've also sent books to prisons in New York State and in Tennessee. Listen, it's a way for us to infiltrate the hearts of women who are hopeless and who are living in darkness. I will do anything to bring Jesus to them. It costs us about $10 a book to send a book to women in prison. We buy the books from my publisher, pay the shipping, and then send them on their way to needy, hurting women who have found their lives upside down and in prison. Would you help us with this project that we are putting all of our heart and mind behind? Would you help us send Bible studies to women who are incarcerated? It costs us about $10 a book. Every $10 you give sends a book to a woman in prison. So you can go to my website, carolmccloudministries.com. You can give on the app, either place. You can uh, notate the gift for prison, or you can call the ministry phone number, 855-569-5433. We'd love to have you partner with us bringing the joy of Jesus to women in prison. Well, now let's get back to my conversation with Julie Seals. So you weren't in prison those 17 years. No. When I went before the judge, um, I, I had been in prison for six months and I went before the judge for my very final sentencing date and the marshals told me that he was the toughest judge in San Diego. And so I went in and I, I was ready to take whatever sentence he gave me. And he looked at me and he said, Julie, I see something different in you. And he said, I'm going to give you a chance. And he, my federal defender was asking for six years with, and she said, don't hold your breath. I don't mm -hmm. think you're going to get it. Yeah. That judge looked at me and I ended up doing 22 months in federal prison, which was two months short of the two years that God himself told me about at the border. Grace. That's called grace, Julie. I know. The grace of God. Yes. And I told him, Carol, that if he let me out of prison, I would spend the rest of my life going back in. And he took me up on it. He took me up on that offer. And my mom was, I just get so overwhelmed at his grace yeah. and his goodness. And my mom knew that I was going to get out in 22 months. And she goes, okay, Julie, you can live with me. You can go to college outside of prison. And she was sending me pictures of clothes that she was buying me and cards. And um, I was talking to her on the phone all the time. And she said my bedroom was ready. And then two months before I got out, I was called to the chaplain's office and told that my mom, who was anxiously awaiting my release, had just died in her sleep. Oh, how old was your mom? She was 62. Oh my goodness, so young. She was young. She had heart problems. She had a mitral okay. valve prolapse and mm -hmm. she had open heart surgery when she was only 40 years old. And the valve had a shelf life of 20 years. So she was past the expiration date. And because 
my dad had died, she didn't want to get a new surgery. She didn't feel motivated to do that. So where did you go when you got out of um, prison? Did you go to your mom's house? Was that waiting there for you or not? No, no. Um, I ended up homeless at a halfway house in San Diego with nothing and no one but Jesus. And what I learned is that when you have literally nothing but Jesus, that he really is all you need. Uh, God opened doors for me to go to college, fully paid for through the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation. And three years after I got out of prison, I was graduating with my first college degree and 20 scholarships. And I won the Chancellor's Award and I was the student speaker at the graduation. And that, again, is the grace of God. It's not because I'm super smart. I'm super average. (laughs) Well, you've got a great big God inside of you. Let me say that, Julie. (laughs) We do. We do. Okay. So let's fast forward because I like to think the way my listeners think. Tell us about your son. Did you ever reconnect with him? Is he back in your life? Who raised him? How's he doing? Do you know any of those answers? I do. Um, I prayed every day that God would restore him to my life. And after, after 13 years, I found him on Facebook. I got on Facebook just to be able to find my son. But the Holy Spirit said, do not reach out to him. He's not ready. And so I didn't, but Mm. I kept following him. And then I saw that he graduated from high school and joined the army. So I got his, I was stalking him sort of. (laughs) I figured out where he was doing. As any good mom would have done. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So I figured out where he went to boot camp. I felt a release from the Lord. And I sent a big box of candy and snacks. Like it was 30 pounds. And I found out later he had to do 200 push-ups because he was, it was like over the limit. But I sent this box of candy and a Bible and a card and I gave him my cell phone and he got my information. He was able to find me on Facebook. And three months later, my husband drove me to the Jacksonville, Florida International Airport. The first time I connected with my son again, we connected on a Mother's Day and he reached out to me on Facebook and said, I want to call you. What's your number? We talked for an hour. And um, three months later, my husband drove me to, God gave me a new husband after I got out of prison. And uh, we've been doing prison ministry the entire time of our marriage, which has been almost 18 years. And my husband drove me to the airport and my son, Tyler, at the age of 20, got off of a plane and came running into my arms arms wide open, full forgiveness. And now I ended up walking him down the aisle at his wedding. And I am grandma now. He's got one little girl. He's married to my daughter-in-law. Her name is Laura. And my granddaughter, Charlotte, is five years old now. Oh, Julie, your life really is a movie. Somebody needs to make a movie of your life. That's incredible. So now you and your husband serve the Lord. Um, He's a chaplain in a prison. Is that right? Yes. He's a chaplain in a men's prison. God gave him a heart for prison ministry because he gave him an ex-felon as a wife. (laughs) (laughs) 
And so he is now, we're both ordained ministers with the Assemblies of God, and he is a chaplain with the Florida Department of Corrections. Oh, my goodness. Well, the Lord has been faithful. Um, When we are faithless, he is faithful still. And the joy of the Lord is all over your face. Um, You're a woman of grace and strength and Holy Spirit power. So, Julie, do you have an anchor verse that you hold on to throughout your life? And what is that verse? I do. It's Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you hope in a future. That was one of the first verses that I read in my Bible when I was in prison after giving my life to Jesus. And even though the odds were completely against me, I chose to believe and stand on the word of God instead of what I could see with my natural eyes, the facts about my life and situation that I could see with my natural eyes. And I can tell you without any hesitation that God's word trumps any circumstance that we can face. Amen, sister. Amen. Julie, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. I just know it's going to encourage so many people and Of course, I especially hope that it encourages moms of prodigals who are praying for their children to to come back. So before we go, would you pray for my listeners? And Julie, would you especially pray for moms and for their prodigals that the Lord would bring them home again? Yes, absolutely. And I will tell you, I have over the years prayed for moms with prodigals and I get messages from those mamas saying, my son is serving the Lord. He's clean and sober. I hear messages all the time. So God, we just come before you right now in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I lift up every woman listening, every woman under the sound of my voice who is saying, Oh my word, God, you led me to watch this podcast today. And could it be that my prodigal could come home? I've been praying for so long. It looks impossible. God, I pray for those mamas and I pray for those prodigals. I pray that you would do whatever it takes to interrupt their life and their path. And God, I pray that no matter how far they run in the wrong direction, that the end of their running would put them right at the foot of the cross in the arms of Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask you to pull the blinders off of their eyes that keep them from seeing themselves as a sinner in need of a savior. I pull down every stronghold of addiction and and every plan and strategy of the enemy to keep them bound up and keep them from discovering freedom in Jesus. We cover those prodigals with the blood of Jesus. And God, I pray for fresh faith and fresh strength for those mamas today to still stand on your word and the promises that you have given them, God. Jeremiah 31, 17 says, um, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. I speak that over those mamas and prodigals today. And God, we thank you that you watch over your word to perform it. And so this is what we are believing for, asking for, and thanking you for today in Jesus' precious holy name. Together, we say amen. Amen. Oh, Julie, thank you. It's been such a delight. Bless you, my sister. I know God's going to use you mightily in the days to come. 
Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been an honor. I loved it. Well, if you've been encouraged by today's episode, I'd like to ask you to do just one thing. Would you leave a review on whatever platform you've been listening to the podcast on? And don't forget, we have an app. That's right. For your smartphone, the Carol McLeod Ministries app. Just go to the app store on your smartphone, do a search for Carol McLeod Ministries. It'll pop right up and you can download it for free. When you connect with us on the app. You can leave a prayer request. You can join a Bible study. You can purchase product. You can read a blog post. We'd love to have you join us there on the Carol McLeod Ministries app. Now let's talk about Julie Seals for a minute. I want you to connect with her. You can connect with her on social media or at her website, julieseals.com. And if you want a great read, buy her book, All My Hope, prisoner no more. It would make a great gift for someone in your life who's just in a dark spot right now, who needs to have a little bit of hope injected into their souls. Um, Maybe you resonated with Julie's story today. Maybe you didn't deal with an addiction, but your life has just imploded, that you've made choices that you're not proud of. Maybe you're living in that dark place that Julie was living in. Listen, I can assure you, that God cares. He cares very much about your life. He cares about the condition of your heart. God cares about the thoughts you think, the words you speak, and the actions you choose. I know my God. I know him well. And he is able to take all of our pain and turn it into something purposeful. He really does work all things together for good, you know. He promised, and we can believe him. Let me read to you from one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 73, verse 28. As for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have put my trust in the Lord God. Who have you put your trust in? I pray you've put all your hope and all your trust in Jesus. If you've never done that before, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. I pray for my sisters, especially who are listening today. Father, if anyone is weary and well-doing, I pray you'd strengthen her in the Lord. And Father, if there's any sister who doesn't know you right now, would you pray this prayer of salvation with me? Jesus, I am a sinner and you're a savior. So we are a perfect match. Jesus, I repent of my sins. Would you forgive me? And Lord Jesus, would you come into my heart and live with me forever? In your name I pray, amen. Well, if you've prayed that prayer, all of heaven is standing to their feet and rejoicing right now. I love you, my sister. I'm cheering for you as you begin this journey of faith. And I would love to hear from you. You can email me at carol at carolmccloudministries.com. I will answer you personally. You're significant. If you're listening, you are significant. Not because of anything you've accomplished, not because of your bank accounts or the number on a scale, but you are significant because if you've you've been made in the image likeness of God, your father and your creator. I'll see you next time on the Significant Women Podcast.